our family of listeners is growing every week. Thanks for listening live and through all our digital broadcasting channels. Spread the word to your friends to join our weekly conversation. It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions, our website, ChristianQuestions.com. Here's Rick and Jonathan. There is no Robert Jarvik once said, Leaders are visionaries with a poorly developed sense of fear and no concept of the odds against them. Welcome to Christian Questions. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. You might say that ours is a long-term approach as we've been broadcasting the good news of the gospel for over 19 years. And I'm Jonathan, and that long-term different perspective has its basis in three things godly principles, family values, honest dialogue, always done in a politically free zone. Rick, today is our 997th broadcast, and we've talked the gospel with listeners on several talk radio stations throughout the eastern and central United States for many years. That's right, and we figured it was time to bring the good news to the whole world by way of podcasting, so here we are. We thank you for joining us today. This is a contact-friendly format, and we welcome your thoughts by email, website messages, chat board, Facebook, so forth and so on. Jonathan, let's get started. What are we talking about today? Well, Rick, our question is, how do you change your world, part one? And our theme text is found in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6. So we built the wall, and the whole wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. So... How do you change your world? Everybody wants their world to be better. Everyone has dreams and ideas that they see as transformative, even innovative, yet the vast majority of us never do anything about those dreams and ideas to bring them to reality. Now, why the lack of effort? I'll tell you why. Because it's hard. Because it takes thought, energy, and determination. And most of us are just not convicted enough by our dreams and ideas to be willing to commit all of that effort. Now, occasionally, someone stands apart from this typical reaction and actually thinks, acts, leads, and accomplishes their dream or idea. Today, we will talk about a little-known man from the Old Testament who did just that. His dream, when you looked at it from the outside in, his dream was laughable. His mission was ridiculous, and his enemies were determined to stop him. Yet he focused and fought with all of his being and changed his world in the process. And Rick, that man was Nehemiah. Nehemiah. There's a guy you don't hear a whole lot about, but today you're going to. And folks, look, it's always our objective with each subject we choose to approach it in a biblical and very relevant practical way. We search out the original context of the scriptures that we cite, try to find their true meaning, and combine those scriptures with the pressing issues of our day to give you something to really think about. So, how do you change your world? Part one, the story of Nehemiah. And don't forget, simply go to ChristianQuestions.com and click Listen Live for the live audio and chat room. Chat with fellow listeners around the world, and we may even include your comments on the air. Okay, so uh, chat room at ChristianQuestions.com. We'd love for you to participate there. So, Jonathan, before we get into the story of Nehemiah, we're going to be telling another story throughout this uh, podcast as well. And this is the story of Dima Gawi. She gave a TED Talk, and uh, this is 
she is a, an Arabic woman from Jordan, and her story is amazing. It's fascinating. So let's listen to the introduction of Dima's story. I hear my grandmother say in a deep, loving Arabic voice, Yadima Ta'ali, which means, Dima, come here. I am five years old, playing in her home. I put my doll down and run to the kitchen, anxious to find out what my grandmother wants to tell me. As I get there, she motions to me to get closer to her. And as I do, I watch her as she leans towards the kitchen table. She picks one of her magazines, carefully rolls it, and then slowly ties it with a red ribbon. She looks at me and she said, today we're going to play a new game. We're going to celebrate the day you graduate from college. Okay, that's different. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Five-year-old girl uh, in the country of Jordan, and her grandmother informs her their new game is going to be about graduating from college. Now, we're going to get much more deeply into that story, but hang on to that thought. Five years old, living in Jordan, and this would probably have been about 30 years ago. So that story we'll come back to. So let's get back to Nehemiah, the man who changed his world and the world of many, many, many people around him. And there is a book of the Bible called Nehemiah. And our entire scriptural basis is going to come from that book uh, today and next week as well. Who was Nehemiah and when did he live? Jonathan, give us a little bit of background and uh, we'll take that from the Clintock and Strong's Encyclopedia of the Bible. Nehemiah was a descendant of the Jewish population that had been taken captivity in Babylon in 587 to 586 BC. In 539 BC, Cyrus the Persian gained control over all of Mesopotamia. He permitted the Jewish exiles to return to the city of Jerusalem. Nearly a century later, in Nehemiah's time, the Persian ruler was Artaxerxes Longjum. Uh, yes, this always gets me. Longinus, which ruled in 465 to 424 BC, Nehemiah was his personal cupbearer. Okay, so Nehemiah lived about a hundred years after Cyrus the Persian, and Cyrus is the Cyrus of the time of Daniel. Uh, was was in play. So about a hundred years later, that's when Nehemiah lived. He also lived at the same time that Ezra the prophet was on the scene, as we will see later on, much later on in the story. So the first thing, Jonathan, we're talking about somebody who changed their world. And when you look at people who changed their world, what do you want to find out? You want to find out what they're made of. Well, the character of Nehemiah is easy to determine. First, the first thing we're going to notice is he's meticulous in ordering details, which would indicate a man who paid very close attention to staying true to truth. And just listen to the, to, to the specificity of Nehemiah chapter 1, just the first two verses, because he's like specific about every little detail. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hashelia, now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when it was in Susa, the capital, the, that Hanani, one of the brothers, and some men from Ju Judah came and asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. 
Okay, so there's 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 meticulous detail there, and it just gets more and more detailed. And Jonathan, I just want to break off from the story for a second. You're going to love this story because there are so many strange names. Oh, I'm having fun already, Rick. <laughs> and I know how much you love those strange names. Oh, yes. Well, we're just getting warmed up with that. So first of all, he's meticulous, okay? That's part of the character of Nehemiah. Secondly, he's obvious in his loyalty, and that loyalty was to God Almighty and God's chosen people. This ends up playing an enormous role in his ability to change his world. And again, folks, as we look at Nehemiah and his ability to change his world, we're going to ask the question, well, what does it mean to us? How can we change our world? Can we change our world? And I think the answer is yes, Pay close attention to what Nehemiah was, how he did things, and it really gives us a template to work from. So let's take a look at his loyalty. And again, this is in Nehemiah chapter 1. This is verses 3 and 4. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So, it's interesting. One of his brothers had uh, come from Judah, the land of Judah. That's where Jerusalem was. So, Nehemiah says, well, how are things over there? I've never been there before. Uh, uh, You know, what does it look like in Jerusalem? And their answer is that the people are in great distress and they're in great reproach. In other words, they're looked down upon, they're, they're, they're being minimized by the people around them, by the different, different nationalities and so forth around them. The walls of Jerusalem, they're broken down, the gates are all burned out, it is a total mess. Nehemiah hears this, and it, it's not like, oh, that's too bad. You know, his reaction... It reacts, breaks his heart, Rick. It absolutely oh. breaks his heart. He, he's... It says that he's fasting and praying before God of heaven. He sat down and he wept and he mourned for days. And you think, oh, is it that kind of a, you know, an over-the-top reaction? But when you think about it, this is God's city. And these are God's people. And when you see this condition, and if you are one of God's people, it hurts. It hurts deeply because Jerusalem was God's city. So, Nehemiah is going, and it says, the last words that you read where, you know, he's, uh, I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He records a good portion of his prayer coming up in just a moment. And that's going to reveal further the depth of his already alluded to faithful and godly nature. And I think, Jonathan, that's the first thing is this man who literally changed the world at his time and his circumstances was a man that was all for God, God's will, God's way, and God's people. But Rick, how can a cupbearer make a difference? (laughs) You know, that's a really good question. And now, first of all, he does have an important job as a cupbearer. Okay? Okay. All right. remember, being the cupbearer meant that you were responsible for when the king was brought wine that he wasn't going to drop dead because somebody poisoned him. Okay. So you had to make sure. He was the last line of defense, (laughs) I guess. That's right. That's right. (laughs) So, and I don't know how it all worked, but you had to make sure that the king's wine was drinkable and healthy. So 
how can a cupbearer make the difference? You're right. So let, let's see. Let's see about that. Let's see how a cupbearer can make a difference. And then let's apply that to ourselves. How can somebody who, who you know, runs their own business, how can somebody who works on an assembly line, how can a bank teller make a difference? Whatever. How can just an average person? Well, let's just watch and see how this unfolds. Let's go back to the story about Dima Gawi. Remember now, she said her grandmother at age five brought her and said, we're going pra- to play a new game about graduating from college. Now, she's a five-year-old living in the country of Jordan. Let's listen to the next step. I made you a graduation diploma. Just run to me when I call your name. I watched her as she took a few steps backwards. She stood straight, raised her head, was holding the diploma as if it was the most valuable thing that she could give me. And I heard her announce in a loud voice to a large audience, thousands of people in our imagination and say, help me to congratulate the next graduate, Dima Gawi. And then she motioned to me to get closer to her. And as I did, she firmly shook my hand. I could see tears in her eyes. And then I heard her say in Arabic, Mabruk ana fakhura fiki, as she was handing me the diploma. Now we're going to get that Arabic translation later on in the podcast, so stay with us for that. But Jonathan, the thing that impresses me about this is as she's telling the story of her grandmother, you can tell that the story her grandmother was telling her was in, of deep importance to the grandmother. Oh, absolutely. She played the part and she felt the part. And that made a huge impression on this little five-year-old girl. So there's something very special going on in that story. And there's something even more special going on in the story of Nehemiah. And, you know, Jonathan, there's going to be, we're going to go through uh, change your world processes. There's going to be seven altogether, four of which we're going to cover in today's podcast. And the other three will be next week. But what is the first change your world process? Well, Rick, it's find your noble passion. Okay. Find your noble passion. We need to explain that. We can't expect to ever change anything unless we're focused on something of such high value that it dominates our very being. Something of such high value. You, it's not just about having a passion for something, Jonathan. It's not like, wow, I want to be rich. That's my passion. That's not a noble passion. With nobility comes integrity. With integrity comes the bigger picture, comes the people around you. And that's the kind of passion, noble passion that Nehemiah found, as as we will see going into this prayer. Find your noble passion. That's the beginning of changing your world. Let's read the first part of Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who perseveres the covenant and the loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So he starts out this prayer by uttering utter complete and sincere praise. He lays God out as the almighty beyond any shadow of any doubt. And then he begins to go into the details. Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. 
I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. So he begins this prayer by saying, Dear Lord God, God of all, God Almighty, we have messed up. And he says it specifically, I and my father's house have sinned. We have all sinned. We have not nearly done what we should have been doing to keep things in order in terms of being, uh, uh, being, able, uh, being worthy of, of your honor and your blessing. So there's this incredible humility that he, he makes himself a part of. And he says, we have sinned. We are all off. So what we're going to see as we go through this noble passion of, of, of Nehemiah's and, and his experience and so forth is that any passion that captures true nobility is based in boldly expressed humility. Greatest leadership comes from the greatest humility. Go ahead. And he also pours out from his heart, Rick, honesty. Yeah. Yeah. True honesty saying, you know, here it is. I'm laying it out before you. Yeah, we messed up. Yeah. We were wrong. And that, and, and it takes great humility to have such honesty, especially to admit such wrong. So look, it's easy to see that Nehemiah's deep reaction is based in true and solid belief. That's true. And his conviction is pressing him. Nehemiah is clearly pleading with God. Is he about to tell God what he wants God to do for him? We've been studying scripture and discussing how biblical history collides with world history in today's culture for 20 years on radio and in podcast channels. If you're curious about how the Bible or Christianity applies to what you have faced and are facing right now in your life, you're tuned in to the right podcast. Listen live or on your own time, then reach out to us at ChristianQuestions.com. Let's take the next steps in our comprehensive conversation. In today's Christian world, it's a common thing for some to go before God with detailed instructions in hand for God's blessing. Nehemiah's boldness was nothing like that. As we will see, Nehemiah was boldly reciting the facts of Israel's sin first, and he will continue to recite the facts of God's promises second. You notice it, it's not going to end up being about Nehemiah. It's the facts of Israel as a nation, him included, sinning, and then the facts we will see of God's promises. Nehemiah is laying the groundwork. Now, I don't know that he even understands this, but he's laying the groundwork to change the world. He's laying the groundwork to lead multitudes of people to actions that on the outside look ridiculous to change their world. How do you do that? There's a great quote here from Theodore Hesburgh. You can't blow an uncertain trumpet. You can't do that because people don't respond if they don't hear that trumpet call loud and clear and definitive. Nehemiah was that trumpet for Israel at this time, as we shall see. But before we get back to the story of Nehemiah and what he is about to do, now remember, he is dis depressed. He is, he is writhing in pain over the fact that Jerusalem is broken down and the gates, the walls are broken down and, and there's rubble everywhere and the gates are burned out. It just is hurting his heart. 
And, it, and it's a sincere hurt. It's not just an, oh, that's too bad kind of hurt. Let's go back to the story of Dima Gawi. And remember, her grandmother is uh, practicing with her uh, graduating college when she's only five years old. And she lives in Jordan. So why is grandma doing that with Dima? Well, let's find out the secret to all of this in the next soundbite from Dima's TED Talk. Years later, I, re- I learned the secret behind this graduation game. My grandmother was not permitted to go to school. As a little girl in the Middle East, she was expected to stay home and help her mom with housework, to cook, and clean all day. But her five brothers went to school every day. They woke up, put on their school uniform, and then after they came back from school, they would be sitting, and actually she's the one sitting next to them, listening to every single word that they said as if her ears were like magnets wanting to catch every single piece of information. She taught herself the sound and the shape of alphabet. It was very important for her to read magazines and follow her favorite movie stars. Reading represented independence to her, and one of those magazines magically transformed in her kitchen to a dream of a formal education beautifully tied in a red ribbon. So you see the story behind the story. Her grandmother was not allowed to be educated. So she learned from her brothers when nobody was watching. She paid attention, she memorized, she taught herself how to read, how to understand the language, and all of that. And so you see this, this, this desire for something better. And, you know, there's a parallel in a very, very uh, different kind of a sense because Nehemiah had a desire, a great desire for something better, not for himself, but for the praise and honor of God Almighty. We're going to come back to that story in a few minutes because I, it just it's a remarkable story of changing your world by uh, Dima Gawi from Jordan. So with Nehemiah, Jonathan, let's get back to his story. Having unequivocally found his passion, Nehemiah now seeks to make it his purpose. See, it's one thing to have passion, okay? But it's another thing to have it be your purpose. And that brings us to our second change your world process piece. And what's that? It's press your passion into personal purpose. Okay. Pay a lot of attention to the P words today because <laughs> they're everywhere. <laughs> I love that. I just, I, that to me, that's kind of like a game. I, I just the, the, the feel of, of words like that. So press your passion into personal purpose. We now go back to Nehemiah's prayer. Remember, he was, you were saying he was speaking with utter honesty and humility about the sins of himself and Israel and the greatness of God Almighty. Notice now in his prayer, after those things are, are, are put out before God, Notice how it deepens in spirituality and it deepens in personal vulnerability before God. Now, we're still in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Let's read actually just 8 and 9 right now. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you have been scattered where in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. So he now says, 
And it's interesting the way he says it. God, do you remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses? <laughs> <laughs> no, we forgot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's an interesting way to bring it up. And what he's doing is, look, he knew this, his scriptures. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 5 here. He knows what the promises were. And he knows that God had said, even, you know, if, if you obey me, I'll take care of you. If you disobey, you may get scattered far and wide. You know, and, and there's an interesting thing about the scattering, Jonathan. There is, uh, Rick. And it says, um, I will scatter you to the most repart, uh, remote parts of heavens. In the NIV, it says, uh, past the farthest horizon, out of sight, beyond the horizon. They're going to go so far away, you can't imagine it. And, and, you know, another thing about the idea of scattered to the most remote parts of heavens, heavens in Scripture can represent governments or nations. And so the the idea is that you are scattered to under the to be under the control of other peoples in those far far away places and that becomes almost an impossibility to regather from cuz like how do you do that if you're so far away like you said you can't even see them they're over the horizon so nehemiah's quoting he's saying look god this is what you said to your servant moses so nehemiah is reasoning before god that action can appropriately be taken so long as the people are willing to go back to God. And he's saying, look, if the people are willing to go back, you promised you'd take them. So it's kind of bold on his part, but he's really laying things out in this vision of his. So again, let's go to back to his prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's read verses 10 and 11. We'll just pause right after verse 10 here. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great power and by your strong hand. Rick, a quick observation. Everything is God's. That's a great attitude. It's all for God, not for Nehemiah. But he said, hey, can I help? Yeah, yeah, and that's <laughs> the thing. <laughs> He's seeing it as God's will, God's way, God's earth, God's people, God's power, God's destiny, everything. Then he says, let's read verse 11. O Lord, I beseech you, May your ear be attentive to your prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servant who delights to revere your name and make your servant successful today and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So you're right. He says it's all about God. And then he says, oh, Lord, I beseech you, please listen to this attentive prayer of your servant who delights to revere your name. Now, think about that as a description. Nehemiah wouldn't be so bold as to say that about himself unless it was absolutely true. He delighted to revere the name of God. So his noble passion was all about godliness. And this, this just, it, it, it just pours out of him. He delights to revere the name of God. And then he says, you know, grant me compassion before this man. What man? The king. Because he said, look, I'm the, I'm the cupbearer. And you said, you asked the question, well, what difference can a cupbearer make? So here's what happens. Nehemiah is asking God to be with him and bless him in his desire for God's people, God's land, and God's purposes. Nehemiah was asking for opportunity to actually show his faithfulness in a way other than living uprightly, living with integrity, and, uh, and, and, and with passion and faithfulness. He wanted to do more. 
and he's asking God for that opportunity. I, and I think that's just such a, such a huge thing. He just wanted to do more because, and he's asking, oh Lord, just lean your attentive ear to me because I really want to help. He just wants to honor the Lord yep. and glorify him. That's all. Yeah, yeah. You know, and here's the thing, Jonathan. God has a way of testing our passion and personal purpose with the passage of time. So, how are you doing? <laughs> you know, oftentimes we get this uh, an idea, a passion, and, you know, it may be godly, but then we sort of peter out on it. And the idea here is Nehemiah, as we'll see in a few minutes, time went by before he had the opportunity to actually act, but he didn't lose the passion. So, you know, it's about the passage of time, and it's about making use of that time. And uh, Rick, uh, to receive daily inspiration and hope, speaking of the passage of time, you should go to CQ Bible Podcast on Facebook or CQ Bible Podcast on Instagram. Also, CQ Bible Podcast on Twitter and CQ Bible Podcast on YouTube. That's all one word, CQ Bible Podcast, social media used for good. So look, as long as you're passing time and going and using the social media world, Let's think about social media like you never have before by using CQ Bible Podcast for Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, so that you can engage in something positive and something world-changing for a godly perspective and purpose. So th thanks for that. Let's go back to the story of Dima Gawi. Now remember, in the last part of the story, the secret of her grandmother's passion was revealed. She was never allowed to learn. So what happens next when, uh, with, with Dima, this young girl? Uh, let's see, this is a symbol. It was the symbol of empowerment, the challenge to the norm, and a desire of a better future starting with me. My grandmother was very aware of the cultural limitations that I was going to face. She understood the expectations that the community has of me. And she was always concerned that just like these limitations stopped her, that they would try to stop and discourage me as well. That's why it was so important for her to plant the seed and the belief that I can graduate early on. That's why she kept playing this game with me over and over and over and over again. So the interesting thing about that, Jonathan, is grandmother did not just play the game once, but again and again and again and again and again, because she needed to make a really important point for this little girl. And it obviously made an impact on her. So time goes by in Nehemiah, once he hears the notes, how, how long a period of time went by before an opportunity rose? It was about four months, I think, Greg. It was four months later that Nehemiah' actual opportunity, uh, his actual opportunity came. His passion and his purpose were still in place because here's where we're going to see what happens. Now we go to Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through six. Let's do one and two to get started. And it came about in the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. So obviously the king knew Nehemiah well, and obviously the, the frustration of the situation with Jerusalem four months later is weighing 
heavily upon Nehemiah, and he's just downcast. He's just he's downcast before the king. You're not supposed to be, but it must have been just getting overwhelming him because it was so important to him. Okay, he's not an emotional wreck. He is a passionately dedicated and devoted servant of God who sees something horrible that he can't do anything about. So he has an immediate reaction. What's his immediate reaction? Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? So he just spills his guts. He just tells the king right then and there, he said, O king, let the king live forever. In other words, you know, I have great respect for you. You've asked me a question, now I'm going to answer that question with honesty. I'm sad because the city, uh, this God's city essentially, it lays desolate and its gates have been consumed. He's got this bold humility. He says what's on his mind. He's honest. And that takes guts in front of a king because you never know what a king's going to do in those days. I mean, you could be without a head really quickly, you know, if he's in a bad mood, okay? This time, his bold humility is before this pagan king who could open opportunity's door or he could slam it shut forever. He takes the chance because the opportunity presents itself and he doesn't hesitate. He's afraid. He's afraid, but he does it anyway. What's the response of the king? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me. And I gave him a definite time. So picture this, four months after hearing of the news and fasting and praying and and great concern before God about this, the opportunity arises to mention it to the king. And the king is very magnanimous. What What would you request? And Nehemiah, in his writing, says something really interesting. Before he answers the king, what does he say? So I prayed to the God of heaven. So he praise first. Dear Lord, this is a door of opportunity. Please bless. I don't know if that was his prayer, but you know, something along those lines. And then he said, I would love to go rebuild that city. I want to rebuild it. And the king has this, this, this affinity for Nehemiah because he, is, he obviously is an important man to him. And he says, well, how long, you know, how long a journey do you think this is going to be? And, and the queen is sitting right there. So this is like he is in the very best opportunity to, to present this as a plan, and so he gives the king a time. Now, how did he know the time? And we're going to find out about that next segment, because Nehemiah is a really remarkable, remarkable individual. But it says, so, the king, so it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. So the king is like, yes, sure. Do you have something you really want to do? You can go. So really, Jonathan, this is amazing. The opportunity arises. You know your passion is your own personal purpose when you're willing to step out of everything comfortable and walk through the door of uncertainty into the outside world of possibility. That's exactly what Nehemiah did at that moment. Nehemiah must have been practically giddy on the inside at this point. Probably. 
providence is unfolding before his eyes. Nehemiah is going. Is this going to be like a fact-finding tour full of observations and information? Before we turn the page, we wanted to tell you about CQ Rewind. It's a free weekly service provided by our great team of contributors who help the guys prepare for each episode. It's an in-depth look at their research, scripture, and much more, showing you the map of Rick and Jonathan's content journey. Now let's continue finding out the better answers as we ask the better questions. Again, if we were to put Nehemiah in today's world, it would be all about gathering information. But Nehemiah was not in today's world. As we are about to see, he was so much more prepared ahead of time than any of us would have ever imagined. This is an inkling of what it takes to change your world. Jonathan, to change your world in the way Nehemiah did take something really special, very powerful, and very focused. And that's, that's a tough thing. But he was definitely the man for this job. Great quote here about being a champion from Muhammad Ali. Champions aren't made in gyms. Champions are made from something they have deep inside them, a desire, a dream, a vision. They have to have the skill and the will, but the will must be stronger than the skill. That is such a key. You know, we all, we all, uh, there are a lot of people who have lots of skill, lots of talent. But if the will to apply that talent in a big way is not stronger than the skill itself, you're not going anywhere. So it takes a lot to be that individual to change your world. You know, we're not going to, we don't want to, you know, minimize this at all. It takes a lot to do that. So what was the first uh, world process, a change your world process? What was the first point? Well, Rick, it's find your noble passion. And remember, the passion has to be noble, something big, bigger than you. It's not about you. It's about something much bigger. And Nehemiah's passion was to rebuild the city of God, rebuild Jerusalem. And the second one that we're continuing on to change your world process, point two, is? Press your passion into personal purpose. Okay. Make that passion your personal purpose. It has got to become something that comes from the inside of you, out of you. That's how you change your world. So let's take that thought, and we're going to come back to Nehemiah in a second, but let's go back to Diamagawi, because now she is starting to grow up, and she has got this passion that her grandmother planted in her about this college diploma thing. And that was their favorite game, and now let's see what happens as life goes on. My grandmother passed away when I was nine years old. But the belief that she gave me never left, never went away. Years later, right before I finished the Tawjihi, which is our Jordanian high school, my oldest uncle called and he said he wanted to talk to me about my future. I immediately felt so anxious. He never talked directly to me before. He's a very wealthy man, successful, respected in our community and family. I remember as we were sitting, my uncle was smoking a cigar and he said, I heard that you're interested in graduating from a four-year college. But I also know that there is a big demand in the market for executive assistance. 
I recommend for you to enroll in a secretarial school, take few speed typing courses, and then focus on becoming an assistant. So it's interesting because the way she tells the story, her uncle never spoke directly to her before this. Wow. Uh, well, and that's part of the society that they were in. I mean, women were not treated, obviously, with any equality whatsoever. And so he says, I understand that you want to go to this four-year college. And I imagine her heart is leaping out of her chest at that moment. He says, but I also know that there's this great demand for secretarial assistance. You should do that. I mean, talk about crushing you have this person who is in the position to really help you, to really encourage you to follow through with this dream. And he's saying, no, that's not for you. So what do you do with that? Well, we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Okay, let's get back to Nehemiah. Let's get back to Nehemiah's story and his passion now. So now remember, the king has basically said, sure, you can go. And Nehemiah has given him a, a, a time frame and so forth for this expedition. Now, he's continuing his conversation with the king. And in so doing, Nehemiah expresses his well-thought-out needs to accomplish what looks like an impossibility. And Jonathan, this next section of scripture to me is deeply revealing about the character and the passion and the godliness of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 7 through 10. We want to take a couple of minutes. Let's do, uh, let's do seven, and, uh, yeah, seven, and, 7 and 8 to start with. And I said to the king, If it please the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the for- king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the wall of the city and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to be to me because the good hand of God was on me. So Nehemiah heard about the walls of Jerusalem being broken down and, and, and the gates, all of the gates being burned out and so forth. From his very first hearing of the broken down city of Jerusalem to the opportunity to find passage and provisions for the job, Nehemiah has his mind and his heart fixed squarely on God. We know that. The other thing that's interesting is that when the king says, you know, you can go, Nehemiah doesn't just stop with that and say, oh, goody, goody, gumdrops, I get to go. <laughs> No. <laughs> he says, if it please the king, here's what I need. And it's not like he just uh, spur of the moment thought this stuff out. In my mind, I can see him late at night with the light of a candle sitting there scratching out. If I were to get the opportunity to help to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, this is the way I would go about doing it. And I would need this, and I would need passage here, and I need timber here, and I need access to these kinds of tools and this kinds of thing. And so he had this all worked out because he, in a, in a moment, tells the king exactly what he needs to give him the opportunity to succeed. What passion! That's the kind of person who can change his world. And in changing his world, he can change the world around, of, of the people around him. He had a noble passion, and it became his personal purpose. Those are the first two change-your-world process points here. So this is an important aspect of this. He had it thought out. So it was real inside of his mind before it became real out in the world. He was so organized. Yes. Unbelievable. And And... He was also visionary with it. He could see it. 
you know, I, I used to build cabinets and countertops, and, and that was something with, that, that I was, had the ability to do. I could, I could see a cabinet, and I could literally, what I would do is I would look at it, I would, I would know what the outside dimensions were of the cabinet, and I could, in my mind, explode it into pieces. And I would sit there, and, I, and it would explode into pieces, and I would just write down the dimensions of each piece. And then I'd send it out to the shop to get cut. Uh, I, it just was this, this, you could see it first. You had to see it in your mind. And that's what Nehemiah did. He saw the project in his mind, step by step by step. Imp- impressive leadership quality and passion shown by Le- Nehemiah here. Let's go back to uh, Dima's story again. Now remember, her uncle just told her, forget going to a four-year college. Here's my recommendation. And in Jordan... In those days, when your uncle told you what you should do, you should have done it. That's just the way society worked. Well, let's see what happens. At that moment, I felt so deflated. I felt very disconnected from my uncle. I was on a crossroad between his advice that would push me to a whole different direction compared to where my heart wanted to go and to, my, and to the belief that my grandmother gave me that I can graduate. I could remember her voice as she was announcing my name so loud to the invisible audience. I remember how, fu- how much fun it was and the excitement that I felt after I received my diploma. So I decided not to listen to him. Instead, I decided to apply to the College of Business at the University of Jordan. That's a tough step for a young lady to decide not to listen to her uncle like that. And, uh, but she, again, she had this vision that wasn't hers originally. It was planted in her heart and in her mind. Nehemiah's vision was a vision of godliness. And it was a vision of honoring and praising God in what his work was to be all about. You know, Jonathan, one of the things we're going to see over and over again in this story is it's not about Nehemiah. It's about the work. It's about godliness. It's about putting God first. And that's why Nehemiah, cupbearer to the king, is now off to Jerusalem to survey and begin his work of praise to God. And that's exactly what it is. Again, let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's do verse 9. Then I came to the governors of the provinces beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. Okay, so obviously the king believed in Nehemiah, at very least, uh, as a man of great value and integrity because he sent with him officers of the army and he sent horsemen. So he didn't send them off to go by himself. He sent an entourage with him to help to assure his safe passage and his success and his representation of and by the king. That's powerful. So you think Nehemiah is, is, just imagine him on this ride thinking, look at me, I'm the cupbearer to the king, and I am off to Jerusalem with messengers from the king's army. The king himself has sent these men with me to help me rebuild God's city. I mean, he's thinking, there's nothing better in life than this, this opportunity that's just, just put before me. So this is the first hint Oh, I'm sorry, we got we to go to um, next verse because now, you know, it, it sounds great and it's all exciting and any vision 
And passion is exciting when, when you think of it and all you see is, wow, look what, what, what can happen. But as with anything that is life-changing, there are always obstacles. Verse 10. When Sambala, the Horonite, and Tobiath, the Amorite official, heard about it, it was very displeasing to them that someone had come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. So remember, the sons of Israel were downtrodden and they were under great reproach by these other city-states in, in this area. And so uh, Sanballat and, Har- the, and Tobiah are two of the officials in the area that just, you know, sort of enjoyed kicking Israel, you know, kicking dirt in the, the eyes of the Jews, so to speak because they were this downgraded people. And they're very unhappy. They're very unhappy. And this is the very first hint of the absolute danger and difficulty that Nehemiah would encounter with his work. There was tremendous difficulty that he was going to encounter. These are two of the guys who created that difficulty and, and, and made it very, very, very um, powerful, something, a great challenge. So, Jonathan, this next point is, is really, ends up really being important. Good. No, no, go for it. Go for it. Okay. Here's the problem. To be in me, to be Nehemiah is not a common thing, is it? No, not at all. That's be- hard. Yeah. And- Most of us aren't like him. Uh, so what do we do if we're not right. a Nehemiah? Right. What do you do if you're not that person who's got that passion, who's got that focus, who's got that determination? Because everybody doesn't. Well, look, to press your passion into personal purpose is a task that's not for the faint of heart and not everyone is necessarily cut out for this kind of work. So what do you do if you're not a Nehemiah? You find a Nehemiah. You walk with that person and you work with that Nehemiah and you can change your world. And Jonathan, this is an enormous point for us to consider because everybody is not that person who's going to go out on the limb by themselves and, and take that stand. So, so you're talking teamwork. Yes. Talking teamwork, talking, if you're not that person with that type of character, it's nothing against you because that person, you're going to find out, can't do the whole, can't accomplish that passion by themselves. They need those, those individuals to work with them. So find a Nehemiah in your life. And there are lots of Nehemiahs around. It doesn't have to be a Martin Luther King Jr. person. It could be somebody on a much smaller scale, but within the the, the context of something that you also are passionate about. And and Jonathan, just a a quick personal example, and this is not meant to embarrass anybody, but we're going to mention the name because because it's a good example. You know, with Christian Questions, our, our entire team is volunteers. That's right. And everybody, including you and I, everybody volunteers to be a part of this. And we have this huge group of individuals who just volunteer their time. Julie is our chief rewinder. And she really heads up bringing volunteers in, finding their talents and putting them to work. She's a Nehemiah within our organization, within this this loosely loosely organized group of of Christians that want to spread the gospel. And she finds those who want to spread the gospel too. And she says, okay, come on in. Let me talk to you. Let me find out what you're good at. Let me find a place where you can take those talents and work within the context of all the things that we've got going here. 
And that's why we work with Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and all of these other things. Because, Jonathan, you and I don't do that stuff. No, we don't. (laughs) You need those Nehemiahs to help out. And then you need those individuals to help the Nehemiahs. That's the point. So it's a tough task. Everybody can't do it, but that's okay. If you're not the Nehemiah, find one. Let's go back to Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 11 to 16. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and I arose in the night, and a few men with me. I did not tell anyone what my God was putting into my mind to do for Jerusalem, and there was no animal with me except the animal on which I was riding. Okay, so he came to Jerusalem, and he had a few men with him. He had few individuals that he trusted. They were helping their Nehemiah. Right from the start, he shared parts of his task with those whom he could trust. Verse uh, 13 and part of 14. So I went out at night. And so he went out to circle the city. Inspecting the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were consumed by fire. But there was no place for my mount to pass. There was so much refuse and rubble of destruction that his horse couldn't even safely pass through. That's how bad a situation this was. So go ahead, verses 15 and 16. So I went up at night by the ravine and inspected the wall. Then I entered the valley gate again and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done, nor had I as yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the rest who did the work. So he went out, he needed to see for himself how bad a situation it was, and you can tell by the description that it was horrible. The piles of rubble were immense, big enough and, and, and disheveled enough so his horse could not even get through. He hadn't told anybody yet. So, but the point is, Nehemiah's personal purpose was to understand, it was to solve, it would then be to inform, and then be to lead. See his personal purpose? Simple. Change the world. One small step at a time. And, and that great leader that he was, he understood you had to take it little pieces at a time. So here's the thing. Nehemiah was not only a planner, but a fearless and driven servant of God. He was, but there is so much more to it. It's great to have such a passion and purpose, but how do you get others to buy into your If we plan? asked Rick, Jonathan, and the CQ contribution team to answer our topical questions in five minutes or less, rather than in several chapters over 90 minutes, they'd probably get a little stressed out. Plus, they love painting that bigger picture by looking at several real-world media perspectives, historical facts, and scripture. That's why some answers may come quickly, but we love taking a look at the bigger questions that aren't so easy. See, the whole idea of changing the world by very definition is predicated on the need for massive effort, cooperation, and co-laboring. These things are not necessarily commodities, and that's why we need people like Nehemiah to be the first to step up and step out of normal thinking and normal activity. Everybody's not a Nehemiah, but you know what? That's okay. It doesn't matter if you're not. What matters is, is that you attach yourself to somebody who is. So Jonathan, what were the first two change your world processes? Find your noble passion, press your passion into personal purpose. Okay, 
find that noble passion, that godly passion that's not about you but about something bigger, and then press it to become your personal purpose, what's the third change your world process that Nehemiah teaches us? Pass your passion and purpose on to the right people. Told you to watch out for those P words, man. Pass your passion and purpose on to the right people. Any truly noble passion for change cannot ever be accomplished without the engaged and dedicated help of others. Nothing worthwhile is solo. Ever. Ever. Even Jesus had his friends. Now, they did desert him at the end, but he had his friends and his followers, his closest followers, that he would turn the kingdom work over to after his ascension. Nothing worthwhile is ever done solo, ever. Great quote from Peter Marshall. Give to us clear vision that we may know where to stand and what to stand for, because unless we stand for something, we shall fall for anything. And that's part of learning how to change your world. Having a clear enough vision to show others for that Nehemiah in your life, if you're not the Nehemiah, the Nehemiah in your life, to show you where to stand and what to stand for and why. And test it. Make sure it is godly. Make sure it is appropriate and all of that. But then stand firm because now you've been given reason and clarity for where you are. That's such a powerful part of this whole process of changing your world. You know, Rick, you have all these steps laid out. <laughs> so, folks, it would be a good idea to sign up for CQ Rewind at ChristianQuestions.com. Hit the newsletter sign-up tab and register for the CQ outline full of graphics and illustrations. It's a topical Bible study, and it's a free service. So CQ Rewind, the full edition, sign up for it uh, via your app or ChristianQuestions.com. And if you don't like it, you can opt out with the click of a button. Okay, so let's get back to it now. This third point is pass your passion and purpose onto the right people. You've got to pass it on. It can't stay with just with you. So now Nehemiah lays out the reality, the plan, and the overruling of God Almighty to those that are going to be very important players in this whole process. We're in Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 17 through 20. Then I said to them, You see the bad situation we are in, that Jerusalem is desolate and its gates burned by fire? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we will no longer be a reproach. I told them how the hand of my God had been favorable to me and also about the king's word which he had spoken to me. Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. So Nehemiah tells the important individuals who have influence exactly what it is. He says, you see the bad situation we're in? I mean, Jerusalem's desolate. It's a mess. And he tells them why. So he actually uses, I mean, his passion. His passion must have been palpable. He must have been so driven that they, because to take on this task, Jonathan, by the way he described the conditions of the walls, it's like, what, are you kidding? It was monumental. It, it, was, it looked ridiculously impossible. It was so bad. And I mean, this is not just some little one-mile-long wall, okay? This is a big, big task. He engages others with three simple steps. So let, let's touch on these three steps. What's the first one? He lays out the hopelessness and therefore the challenge. Okay. There is hopelessness 
and he labels that hopelessness a challenge. The walls of God's city are in ruins. That's what he's saying. It's God's city. The walls are in ruins. This is our challenge. What's the second step? Well, next, Rick, he lays out the bold initiative. He says, let us rebuild these walls and remove reproach from God's city. See how specific he is? He said, he's not saying, hey, I have a plan about rebuilding the wall. He says, let us do it together. So he's this bold initiative. He's saying, we are in this together. Even before they accept, he's, he's treating them as though they're part of the process. And what's the third step? First, he laid out the hopelessness, the challenge. Then he lays out the bold initiative. And then what's the third step? Well, lastly, he lays out why this impossible task is possible. So he tells them very plainly, this looks enormous. This looks, again, ridiculous. This looks absurd. But you know what? God has blessed me. God arranged for the king himself to let me come here. He arranged for the king to open up the door for me to get the passage and the timber and, and, the, and the things that I need to, to get this done. He says, so you know what? God's opened the door. It may look impossible, it may look ridiculous, but God is behind it. So he lays out the challenge, he lays out the initiative, and then he says it's possible because God is with us. And Jonathan, if we want to change our world, it should be with a godly initiative. Absolutely, Rick. Not something political, not something merely righteous, but godly. This is the, the area that we really want to focus on. Let's go back to our story of Dima Gawi. Now, remember, um, her uncle was not uh, very favorable, and she decided to not listen to her uncle anyway, remember? And That's so she, right. So she applies to a four-year college. So now let's see what happens once this, this process begins. The first semester, one day, I was less than 10 minutes late to my 4 p.m. curfew. And my father was so mad. He said, you're not allowed to complete your education. Stay home and I'll find you a husband. My father was not comfortable with the fact that I was attending a co-ed university. Just the image that I'm surrounded by young men disturbed him. He is educated. He's a medical doctor, but he never understood the significance of education to me. So I started begging and begging and begging day and night, continued to beg, and he agreed finally. But the threats never ended, and most of the time for no logical reason. So her father was looking for any excuse possible to bar her from school. And it took immense determination on her part to keep Oh, going. absolutely. What focus. And, and, and see, there's a great lesson in that. And, and, you know, so far in her story, it's about her, but it's going to be about much more than that, as you will see, because this was so deeply implanted her, the importance of education, that it ended up being a world-changing event for many, many, many people afterwards. But everything was against her, the way society was set up, and yet she just fought through it. Okay, great inspiration from this woman, Dima Gawi, in this TED Talk. Someone, back to Nehemiah, someone once said that no good deed goes unpunished. In the midst of the planning and prep stages, the enemies of God once again rise up to threaten and stifle the effort. 
All right, so Nehemiah recruits the important individuals and they say, yes, let's do this thing. Here's what happens next. Remember Sandblaster and uh, the and Tobiah? <laughs> well, they're they're back. <laughs> Nehemiah chapter two verses. Uh, well, verse yeah, nineteen and twenty. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official and Geshem the Arab heard it, they mocked us and despised and said, "What is this thing you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king?" So literally, they threatened ridiculed and disdained Nehemiah and his company. They're looking at it, and now, you know, Sanballat and, and Tobiah now have this other guy, Geshem. Again, these, these, these are different uh, rulers in the area, and they are not liking any positive Jewish activity in, in this area of Jerusalem. None. They'll have none of it. And they say, oh, so what are you, rebelling against the king? I mean, I guess they were overlooking the fact that Nehemiah rode there with the king's men. Yeah, I guess they did. That did slip their mind. <laughs> yeah, just uh, conveniently. But that's what happens. When, when, when you don't want something to happen, you only focus on what you want to focus on. So Nehemiah had a great challenge here. And this challenge was going to grow bigger and bigger. So he's got to deal with them. And it's interesting. Nehemiah could say, oh, just leave me alone. The king said, okay, and just go away. <laughs> but he doesn't do that. No, he doesn't. Right? <laughs> what does he do? Whoa, this is big. <laughs> so I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven will give us success. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion, right or memorial in Jerusalem. So he tells them outright, wow. God's <laughs> going to give us success. And by the way, leave us alone. Jerusalem is not yours. So... Don't be breathing all kinds of threats. That's not even your property. That's not your land. This is God's city. We're rebuilding it. God will give us success. Now, what a powerful answer, Rick. They haven't even moved a stone yet, Jonathan. They haven't done anything. <laughs> and yet, this is where Nehemiah's focus is. Remember, you pass your passion and purpose onto the right people. He would have had those people with him at this time. They would see the passion and direction that he was going, and that would feed them in their desire to do the right thing. He speaks a powerful answer. He says, God has this. You, Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, Geshem. Mm -hmm. thank you, have no authority. It's going to happen. He originally told his Jewish allies that, that his God, Nehemiah's God, was with the task. Here, when he's describing it to these enemies, he tells them that their God, he and his believing Jewish kin who are with him, will see them through. So, you see, Nehemiah understands the power of the right people in executing the plan and purpose that he, he brought to them. It was about not just Nehemiah anymore. It's about our plan, our purpose, our passion to honor and praise our God, and nobody's going to get in the way of that. I mean, Jonathan, what a, what a tremendous leader. He is, absolutely. So let's go back to Dima again, because Dima's story is, you know, it's starting to, to gather some momentum now. She's in, she goes to college, and what happens now, at 19 years old, her father decides she has to get married. Okay, now again, he is trying to upend her finishing school. She, so there's an arranged marriage. She marries a man who's 30 years old. They end up moving to California. 
Now she's got language barriers. She, I mean, she's got to drive on the other side of the street. I mean, you know, super highways. I mean, there's all of this trouble when she goes to California, but she is determined to continue her education. So let's see what happens now that she and her new husband are in California. And let's see, this is 12. Here we go. It was my graduation day. I was standing in line. I was next to receive my diploma. My heart was beating. I was so excited. And as I heard the announcer say, the next graduate, Dima Gawi, I could hear my grandmother as she was announcing my name. And as I took the first step to walk towards the dean to accept my diploma, I remember how I was, I was running in her kitchen. And as I shook the hands of the dean, and I heard him say congratulations, I could hear my grandmother telling me in Arabic and congratulating me, Mabruk ana fakhura fiki, which means congratulations, I am so proud of you. My belief became my reality. I graduated and I graduated again with a master's degree. So not only did she graduate, she went for further education, she got her master's degree, and she really, really nailed it down. She had a dream. She worked her tail off through all kinds of difficulty and accomplished that dream. And, you know, the story could stop there and it would be a terrific story. It but would. as we're going to see in the next segment, the story doesn't stop there because her dream is bigger than just that. And that's what made her so successful. Remember, it was her grandmother who transferred that vision into her own head. And she had that same sense, and we'll see that unfold soon. Uh, back to Nehemiah, though, okay? He now has faced what would become his enemies, and we'll see that especially next week in, in part two of this. And he has told them flat out, God has got this. We will be successful. Stay away from, from Jerusalem. You have no right to that city. So the work very specifically begins. So they actually are starting the work with those who have deeply committed themselves. So they start not with everybody, but they start with a few. Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers, the priest, and built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and hung its doors. They consecrated the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of the Hananel. And so now there's this building process going on. But, you know, you got to ask yourself, why, why this high priest? Why this particular family? Why start where they started? Let's take a look at who Eliashib was and then a little bit about the gate. Eliashib was the grandson of Joshua, the high priest. His father's name was Jehoiakim. He began being the high priest and rising first. He set a good example both to the priests and to the people and serve no doubt greatly to animate and encourage them. Okay, so he had the high priest doing this particular work first to make a statement that the one whom they all already looked up to before Nehemiah got there was thoroughly on board. And it's interesting that they build the sheep gate. What is the sheep gate? Matthew Poole's got some good commentary on that. They built the sheep gate where the sheep were washed and then brought to the temple to be sacrificed. Why the sheep gate? And, and Jonathan, you know, anything of spiritual value for us as Christians has to be built around the will of God through Jesus Christ. That's right. The Lamb of God, That's which right. taketh away the sin of the world. What a beautiful illustration of Jesus. Isn't it 
awesome. They build yeah. the sheep gate because that's where the sheep are washed and brought for sacrifice. So without that gate, without that process, we've got nothing. How so special is, is that? It is just such a beautiful, beautiful picture for us to look at and to follow up on. So Nehemiah not only gets the work started, but he chooses the right person, the one whom all of the locals already respected, and he chooses the right gate, the one that gives the most power because it's about temple sacrifices, and that was so important. So the priority of serving God cannot be underestimated. And Nia made sure that his entire team saw that. He wanted them to be utterly clear as to what was most important. All of Nehemiah's personal conviction and development has thus far paid off. So what's next? Well, all of that is really just the beginning. This was a massive job. How did Nehemiah set the people up to work with the greatest efficiency? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry, we never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. You know, Jonathan, the change of one's world is never small or easy. Remember the piles of rubble he talked about earlier? Think about the mass and the height that the wall would require would be required to build to be secure. Nehemiah seems to be moving forward with a steady confidence in God's will, with brilliant foresight, and with an energy that's contagious and a wisdom for the ages. Definitely the right man for the job. And again, everybody can't be a Nehemiah. And so, Jonathan, what do you do if you're not that Nehemiah person? You find a Nehemiah. That's right. And attach yourself to a noble passion. That's right. Noble, godly passion. And, and pour yourself into it and allow that Nehemiah in your life to help you help them change the world around you by, by elevating godliness and spirituality in accordance with Christianity and Christ. So what, what were the first three change your world processes? Find your noble passion. Press your passion into personal purpose. Pass your passion and purpose on to the right people. Okay, so you find it, you press it, and then you pass it on. So now you've got others involved, and it's becoming their purpose as well. And so, Nick, what's the fourth change your world process step? Well, Rick, it's practice your passion and purpose with urgency. So you practice it now with urgency. Not just sort of like, okay, yeah, we'll get around to that. I feel like I'm going to move those stones maybe next week. You know, maybe we'll clear some of that rubble away uh, after we take another break. Uh, that, that's, that's not the urgency we're talking about here. One of the very hardest aspects of changing your world is to engage others with the same ownership that you have. Nehemiah used some very simple and godly principles to accomplish this. He used family and he used ownership. We're going to see this in Jonathan. To me, this is utter brilliance on his part as to how he got people engaged and really working with that personal pride in, in accomplishment for, for, for the job. But before we go there, let's take a, a, another brief look at uh, Dima Gawi. Now remember, she has graduated and then she got a master's degree, and that would have been a happily ever after story. But wait, there is more. I learned 
that as a dream becomes a belief, it becomes unstoppable. It's one thing to tell others to dream, but it's a whole different thing to help them believe that they can achieve that dream. And a powerful way to do that is to help them by making it tangible, by helping them to see it, feel it, experience it over and over and over again. Then it becomes so powerful that would allow them to take actions, difficult actions, and it would become their reality. So she's sharing what she has personally learned. And what we're going to find out in just a moment is not only has she personally learned it, but she personally passes it on to others, which is really a very inspirational part of this story of Dima Gawi. So before we get to that, we're going to get to that in just one more minute. Nehemiah chapter 3 is a long and detailed list of who did what. Now, remember we talked at the very beginning about how detailed Nehemiah was? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Chapter 3 is full of names and locations along the wall, and it's very clear and very specific as to who did what job and who was next to them and who was next to them and who was next to them. We're going to drop in on this list here and there to see the strategy that Nehemiah employed to maintain the urgency that was required to succeed. Because remember, the people needed to be driven along. I mean, this was not some high-paying job. This was volunteer work. <laughs> there was no pay here. <laughs> no, you're right. Okay, this is volunteer work, and they needed to have that vision in front of them. How do you keep the people really moving with urgency? Before we get to that, let's do a quote from Anthony Robbins, and let's go back to Dima Gawi one last time. The people who shape our lives and our cultures have the ability to communicate a vision or a quest or a joy or a mission. So, and Anthony Robbins really nails it down. Those who shape culture have the ability to portray that vision, that picture, that mission, that something that makes you move from where you are to doing something differently than you did. So there's, there's great power in that. And Nehemiah was such an individual. And again, I, and, and you know, because before we started the podcast today, I was like ranting and ranting and ranting about how inspiring this is to me. Absolutely. <laughs> because Nehemiah is such a powerful example of, of motivating others to see what you see and not to be the guy that takes all this credit, but just to be the guy that kickstarts everybody and focuses them and, and helps them plow through. What a great example. Dima Gawi became that kind of person in her life since. Let's listen to this last soundbite and get a sense of where she went after she got her degree and then her master's degree and I think several others. My grandmother would be so proud to learn that every single woman in our family that came after me graduated from college and many with a master's degree. It's not even a question in our family right now if women should get an education. It is our new norm. It is the healthy norm. It is my grandmother's dream come true. My grandmother would also be proud of one more thing. She loved to read, read her magazines cover to cover. She would never have imagined to one day open one of those magazines and see an article about me. 
about that work that I'm doing to empower others, just like she empowered me. But the best part, she wouldn't just see my picture, she would see her picture too. Isn't that great? Wow. You know, you think about that. And, and what a dedication that is. And why, so her life is built around empowering others to find a way to become educated because it's important, because that gives you choices in your life. And especially where she came from, Jordan is not a place where women are looked at very, very highly. And yet that's where she was pounding out and focusing her work and her family and, and others. And, you know, she's giving what she was given. And that's the power of changing your world. Nehemiah does exactly the same thing on an even larger scale. She honored her grandmother for giving her the vision. Nehemiah honors God right. for everything that is taking place. And he honors God by giving others the vision that he was given and giving others the tools and the opportunities that he was given and saying to them together, let's you and I, let's all go to work. So how did he keep them urgent in this voluntary scenario. Well, the first element of the strategy to attain and maintain urgency and quality is found in Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 2 to 5. We're going to do a little bit of jumping around in these verses. Next to him, the men of Jericho built. Now the sons of Hasni built the fish gate. They laid its beams and hung its doors and its bolts and bars. Next to him, Zadok, the son of Bani, also made repairs. Moreover, next to him, the Tekotites made repairs, but their nobles did not support the work of their masters. Okay, so what you see, and you've got to look closely, but what you see is the men of Jericho, the sons of this other guy, the Tekokites, however you say that, them as a group. So he put people to work with their families, with their associates, with the people that they already knew. This was efficiency and cooperation put in play because now you've got people you're used to, people you care about that you're working along with, and it's so much easier to dovetail your efforts with those people. So his first strategy is put people who know each other, who have family ties together, and let them all work together. And I think that's a brilliant, brilliant thought. Simple, but very straightforward. It makes sense. It does. It makes really, really powerful sense here. All right. So you've got families working together. So the second element of strategy to attain and maintain urgency and quality is in Nehemiah chapter 3 as well, verses 17 and 18. And Jonathan, we're taking just a couple of verses here and there in this whole chapter just to... You, got, you just got to read through it and, and observe the little nuances that tell you how Nehemiah was thinking to keep the urgency alive. So the second element, Nehemiah 3, 17 through 18. After him, the Levites carried out repairs under Rem, the son of Behni, next to Hashabiah, the official of half the district of Keilah, carried out repairs for this district. After him, their brothers carried out repairs under Bavai, the son of Henadad, official of the other half of the district of Keilah. How are you liking those names so far? Oh, I am having a blast, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> but see, here's the thing. Uh, everybody, whether it be families working together, 
Now you have people who have relative power within Jerusalem, people in, in places of responsibility. Officials. Officials yes. were put to work on their own district, on the wall outside of their district. And you can imagine that if you're put to work on the wall outside of your district, and that's the district that you have responsibility for, your thought's going to be, hey, this is my district. We're going to make this wall good right here. Yeah, that gives you a sense of value to your section. So Nehemiah understood that, and he found the individuals who had authority and put them to work in places where their authority would really mean something, and therefore their work on the wall, which was tedious and incredibly difficult, would mean something. So not only did he put people to work together who knew each other and who were family members together, but he put people who had measure of authority uh, to work on the wall around those districts, around those areas, because the sense of value rises. There's another element of how Nehemiah got people to keep the urgency. Because look, everybody wasn't uh, a, a, uh, somebody in authority. Okay, so now the third element is Nehemiah chapter 3. We'll go to verse 23, and then we're going to drop down to verses 28 to 30. After them, Benjamin and Hashab carried out repairs in front of their house. After them, Azariah, the sons of Meashiah, son of Ananiah, carried out repairs beside his house. Above the horse gate, the priests carried out repairs each in front of his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, carried out repairs in front of his house. And after him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, carried out repairs. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Meshalam, the son of Barakaya carried out repairs in front of his own quarters. Jonathan, you did really well with those names, man. I'm amazed. <laughs> you didn't even stumble over one. I was reading thinking, how is he going to pronounce this one? How is he going to pronounce that? That's amazing. By God's grace. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Building wall is, t- uh, wall is tough, but reading the names of the people that built it, that's a tough job. <laughs> but, you know, here's the thing. There's a, there's a recurring theme in those verses that you read. And that recurring theme was they did the work in front of their own house. To protect their own homes, Rick. To protect their home, to protect where their family would live. So you've got this, this, this desire to build the wall strong and, and, and with high, high quality. Because You think they're going to slack off in front of their own house? Right. No you, way. Be, you need the wall to protect you. And so Nehemiah, first thing is he put people relatives working together because you know everybody didn't live by the wall okay that's right that's a good point so you've got the relatives all working together to have that sense of community and and do good quality work then you have those people who have authority you put them together and let them work on the areas in which they had authority the pride and the value that would come with that and then you find the people who lived near the wall and you put each of them to work right in front of their own living quarters, in front of their own homes. And Rick, that ensures high quality work. Absolutely. And you know, the amazing thing is, think of all of the questions he would have had to ask 
to know where to put the people to work. This wasn't just, hey, you three, head down south. You three, head east. You three, head west. And the other three, head north. It was, where are you from? What do you do? Where do you live? Do you have any authority? And, and he would take these notes. And so he did all of this work ahead of time. He didn't have a database. You know, he couldn't just pull it up on, a, on, a, uh, on an Excel spreadsheet and say, okay, let's put these people here and these people here. This was all had to be done by hand. And, and, and just he had to talk to all of these people. So you see, Nehemiah, the greatness of his desire to change the world engaged every single person in a unique way. And Rick, I love how he put into their hearts the purpose of urgency, just like his. Yeah. Yeah. He found a way to find that urgency for each and every one of them. And Jonathan, it's brilliant how he did that. See, this is how you change the world. You take the time to get to know those people. Remember, practice your passion. Uh, I'm sorry, pass your passion and purpose onto the right people. Yes. And then have them all practice it with urgency. So, and that's what Nehemiah did. So, look, folks, we are about out of time for this podcast. We're going to continue this next week because we haven't even gotten into the trouble that's waiting for Nehemiah. I mean, so what do we have so far? We have this mighty crew of workers, each with their own motivation to repair Jerusalem for the sake of God first and for the sake of their own uh, heritage and protection second. So, Jonathan, what's coming? How about threats, fear, doubt, internal strife? <laughs> Great. Just to name a few. <laughs> well, and, and those are all very real issues anytime somebody wants to change the world. You don't change any world, anytime, anywhere, under any circumstances without having to face major trouble, major problems, and major issues. We have seen Nehemiah so far, and we've seen how he is setting himself up to be successful by understanding the work, by understanding the people, by praying. At every turn, he prays and he prays and he prays and he prays so that he can get God's will focused. And then he puts the people to work with that focus and they're going to do a miraculous thing together. So folks, next week, we will continue the story of changing your world with the story and the process from Nehemiah. So until next week, for Jonathan and Rick and Christian Questions, you can change your world. If you're not a Nehemiah, find one, cling to that person, and go to work. Until next week, think about it. And folks, remember, we love hearing from you, our listeners. Let us know what you thought about today's topic. Suggest future topics. Start a conversation with us at ChristianQuestions.com. And make sure you download the Christian Questions app.